On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group continues to talk about the dark side of the moon. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm once again joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Tom Corcoran, and Paul Zotter as we continue and finish out The Dark Side of the Moon. All right, gentlemen, welcome back to actual part two of the dark side of the moon so it's been a whole extra week now that we've had to cogitate on the side two of dark side of the moon and any other you know extended lore or things that maybe we have have come across and and want to uh to consider here but i think you know we had obviously a very lively and lengthy discussion last episode about uh, what essentially was the first half of this record and and now we get to come back and, and finish it out so i'm curious how have you guys used this extra week well i admittedly went forward a little bit i listened to wish you were here and i i really wanted to get some perspective as to where the band would ultimately go. Tom, Tom is stampeding ahead to the next episode. <laughs> well, I suppose if you're not forging ahead, you're being left behind. <laughs> well, anyway, Wish You Were Here has always been really my favorite Floyd album. It was the album that I grew up with the most. I just wanted to see at this place in time how it compared. I sort of compare these two albums to... Uh, two early Genesis albums, Foxtrot and Nursery Crime. On any given day, you're going to get a different answer from me as to which album I think is better. And and Dark Side and Wish You Were Here are the same. And so I don't know if I had any new revelation other than the fact that both are equally incredibly kick-ass. <laughs> One other thing I did actually is go back to a Claire Torrey interview where she talks about the Great Gig in the Sky vocal session. Last week, I talked about how she had done it in, in, in one take. I wanted to make sure it was actually correct that she, she did do it in one take, and I uh, listened to the interview again. Apparently, she did do a second take, and then she stopped halfway through, and she told the guys, look, I think we got it on the first one. So there's a chance that they could have pasted the, the two together. I don't know if I got the total clarification that I wanted, but the the one take story is very romantic, so I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I spent a lot of time listening to Great Gig in the Sky, only because I, for a bit this week, I was listening to only the second half of Dark Side, so I would always start at Great Gig in the Sky. I was just so smitten with it last week. And and I did a little bit of searching on YouTube for some live versions. And um, there are a lot of versions of Great Gig in the Sky. It's, it's amazing how, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, no, no pun intended, but how many times do you hear somebody deliver a note for note rendition of a song? And it just leaves you feeling flat like you're just like yeah that just wasn't anywhere close to you know claire tory's original performance and after watching about a half dozen videos of of different people but sometimes with pink floyd sometimes you know tribute bands sometimes a school of rock bands doing it um 
all good versions, but no one, you know, really delivered. And I, I even even Claire Torrey did it with Pink Floyd uh, in 1990 or something like that, yeah. and um, it, she didn't deliver it either. So, so oh. not that it was bad. It just like you know, it was such an amazing performance captured on that record. It is so amazing. That really struck me even more this week. Well, I mean, Paul, don't you like the versions where they have multiple vocalists? We kind of touched on that last time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not that I don't like them. It's just that just doesn't capture it for me. And I agree with you, Paul. I, I mean, I haven't I haven't listened to probably as many as as you, but like I did, I went out and tried to find some some live versions as well. And I listened a couple of times. In fact, even just today while I was preparing dinner, I listened to the live Dark Side disc from Pulse, which was the 1994 tour. Ah. I agree with you 100% in that even Gilmore touched on it in uh, the Lost Art of Conversation. All the different versions of Great Gig are good, but I agree with you. I don't think any of them is as magical as mm. as the, this recorded version. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's something that sets it about. There's a band called Adam that I believe is a Pink Floyd tribute band, and um, their version was pretty pretty good. Could have been tops of the. Cover versions that I that I saw. Joe, I can tell you what I did in the last week. I went back to the Blake book, Comfortably Numb. Okay. And one of the references in that book, in regards to Dark Side of the Moon, we know that album sales were soft when Dark Side was released. And one of the reasons being is there were so many bootlegs of the material. Uh, maybe one in particular stood out live at the Rainbow Theater. And then I went down the rabbit hole of just general Pink Floyd bootlegs, and it's massive, dude. I think we need (laughs) – I mean, I'd like to put in a change request. I think we need another year of Pink Floyd on the (laughs) Palaver. Time was really wonderful. There was kind of this jammy stuff somewhere in between. Uh, And they did end with Eclipse. It was kind of uplifting. And then, of course, they went into some of the old favorites, and I got lost down the rabbit hole of uh, careful with that XUG and whatnot. I had a wonderful Floyd week as a result of our conversation mm. last week. So one of the things that I did, you know, we had talked about I had that that DVD, which was the, the classic albums program or whatever, plus it had some bonus material. But then I went... And I found another, I I was looking, I found a couple of different things on YouTube, but I did find, and Tom, you had mentioned it in the pre-show, the, the, the one where they're talking about the, the 5.1 mix specifically with regards to that. And that was, I think that was shorter. It was probably only about 30 minutes, but it, it was interesting because one of the things that really stuck out to me, there were, there were a couple of things. David Gilmore's talking about how the stereo recording that we have all grown to to know and love are at best third generation tapes because all of the rhythm tracks had been mixed down onto one tape and then they brought everything else on top of it. And the 5.1, apparently they went back to the original source tapes and, and mixed it that way so that uh, apparently you know there are things that you can hear on the 5.1 mix that we hadn't heard before. And I'm like, Wow, now I've got to go out and find the freaking 5.1 mix. Fantastic. You know, like I need to buy anything else. So, Joe, real quick, I don't mean to interrupt you, but do you have 5.1? Do you have five speakers? 
I don't. <laughs> I could easily. We have to all go to Tom's house. You have a big acquisition to prepare for. You know, it's all about it's all about motivation, Tom. So once I find the Dark Side 5.1, uh, you know, CD, then I can that'll be my impetus to go out and buy everything. The other thing, and and it was funny because I I had, I had sort of noticed this before, the the slight changes in this iconic cover. And they, they talk about it in mm-hmm. this, right? So the original, apparently, I guess the prism or the triangle was was just an outline. And then when they did, um, what was it, the, the mid-90s re-release or whatever, you know, Storm had updated it to this sort of, you know, more opaque prism. And then for the, the 5.1, he updated it even more. And he ex- sort of expanded out the image and created it like a, a stained glass type thing. It was fun to hear him talk about, you know, the, the way he was sort of updating while keeping the same central image. And it really, it, it struck me in a very Roger Dean way. You know, if, if you go and look at some of Roger Dean's collections or whatnot, he will do a lot of variations on a theme. And actually, yes, I've used the fly from here. The, the two fly from here's have very closely related but different cover art. So I, I just thought that was that was kind of interesting the way that that was presented. I thought it was was pretty cool. And then, of course, the other thing, we had mentioned it on the last episode as well, but I did see the one sort of short documentary where they were they were talking to Nick Mason and Alan Parsons, and it was friend of the Palaver, Dave Kersner. And it was just, you know, you guys had, yeah. had told me about it, but when when you see it, I, even <laughs> though I, I, it was a spoiled for me, I, I just had to laugh when I saw him. I'm like, Dave! <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. One of the cool things about that, because I watched that video on YouTube about the 5.1, and also also listening to the last start of conversation and hearing about what they did when they approached some of the album covers. The thing that I love about it is that you know, you think of David Gilmour as this incredible guitar player and great singer and just great band. And, and you, you know, sometimes I, at least for me, I lose sight of the fact that they're artists, you know, that they have, you know, sort of artistic vision that they're getting across. And when I hear stories about how they're working with Storm and and they're all collectively updating the work and adding things, yet keeping true to the the original form. It just it just reminds me that there are artists with with vision, and it's it's wonderful. So the other thing, sort of general, that I I, I wanted to touch on, and I don't think we did last time, in the classic albums documentary, and and the interviews from there kind of touches on a little bit of the lore. So when we talk about, and I got to find it here in my notes, um, Chris Thompson, who was brought in as the the mixing supervisor and and, and this, you know, this this tale of the the back and forth between um, perhaps Roger and David at that time. And it's not 100% clear, but clearly this Chris Thompson was brought in late in the game for that. And, and that's all well and good and, and everything else. But what amazes me about that was, I believe it was Gilmore who was talking about that. And, and he was, you know, he was describing, you know, at this point in time, you know, you didn't have computer control and everything else. And when they were mixing this album, it was all hands on deck. Mm. And I believe it was Gilmore who described the mix as a performance in and of itself um, in order to get 
you know, that the way you want it. I just have this, this yeah. vision, right. Of, of how that went down and everyone's sort of practicing, okay, here, I gotta, I gotta slide in and, oh, I gotta move these down. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't know, it just, it, it honestly put a, a very silly and, and, and juvenile picture in my head, but it, for whatever reason, that sort of, you know, resonated with me. I just, I thought that was fascinating that, you know, a lot of what makes dark side so special apparently is the mix. And Mm. that was not necessarily a foregone conclusion. So whatever magic they had, had to continue on to the end of the process. Nice. I love the fact that we live through that era of audio. I mean, Tom, nothing happens without automation. True. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I think about that all the time. I I think about (laughs) just how I I really do. I I think about how, what it'd be like to, to mix a song or anything and not have automation. And as many sessions as we've been in when we were younger that didn't have automation, I still, I still can't even like think about it. I think Paul and I were even talking about this the other day, Yeah. uh, you know, cutting tape and, and things like that. And it's one of those things when, you can't put your own head around it, even though we were a part of these sessions back in the day where there was no automation. But um, I mean, God, I mean, I can't even imagine doing a film with all the little tweaks that you make without without automation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even our podcasts are automated. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Those expert fates at the beginning. Man. <laughs> When I had to match you guys when I edited, I was like, oh, my God, there's a formula to this. This is <laughs> really there's only one way to do the beginning of a palaver. And if, if, if you fake it, if you just try to no, it's got to be right. Well, it's funny. I've, I've toyed with the idea of going back and redoing, you know, the first handful of episodes before I figured out the formula. But that's I don't have time for that shit. No. Nah. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, I just, you know, I, that was again, sort of something just, um, you know, some more flavor in the soup as it were about, you know, the, the aura around this album, you know, because I, and, and I, I kind of, you know, like Tom, you know, I kind of looked ahead a little bit. So I listened to a couple of, of interview series on Wish You Were Here and Animals and, and whatnot. And you never have that level of detail. You never get to that conversation. And I don't know if it wasn't important or if it's just everyone loves Dark Side so much. And so you there's so much to talk about. You finally get around to this stuff. I, I don't know what the difference there is. But it is, you know, that level of detail is available for Dark Side. And I think it's spectacular. Mm. You know, I think about that. Remember when we were talking to uh, to Mark Anthony Kay and he was talking about his, I guess, the guy who does Kiss FAQ, who writes those huge books. Yeah. On, yeah. Mm-hmm. on every, on, you know, on individual Kiss albums. He's got like a 600 page book. And yeah, you're just like, all right. So you, you get that for Dark Side. There is that level of information. Right. But there isn't maybe for some of the rest of this stuff. Yeah. It's like it's 20 after 11 and we really haven't talked about anything yet. (laughs) Last time we left off, we had finished up side one of the dark side of the moon with the great gig in the sky. So now we're going to flip the vinyl over and we are going to hear Roger Waters sound design in the form of the 
the the money sounds. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. very, very, you know, I I thought it was a very charming story about how that came about mm-hmm. in in the fact that, you know, and, and you guys, some, you've heard it and we can, you know, point other people who are listening to the blabber who have not heard it to hear Roger describe how he was out, you know, at the time he was married to a woman and they had a small shed in the back of their garden. And she had a potter studio on one side and he had his little recording studio on the other side. And she had a large steel mixing bowl for mixing clay. And he thought, ah, perfect. So he grabbed a handful of coins and threw them into the metal bowl. And that's the first thing you hear. And then he tore up some paper and then he went and found all the other songs. That's charming enough, but what what I just found fascinating was the fact that he then went out and he he said, okay, it's 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 a song in seven eight, so he cut seven equal length pieces mm-hmm. of tape yep. Yep. to record this on, yeah. taped them together, and 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 then in the in the, um, in the documentary they have just a spectacular shot of Alan Parsons recreating this tape loop wrapped around a mic stand as it as it runs through the the tape machine you would never do that like that today you'd have you know three little three or four little sound files and you would repeat it that way there was just there was such a charm about the way this happened and, and again it's one of those things where you grew up and this this was the big hit right this was the song on the radio so we all knew and heard these these sounds all the time and to see how it was physically integrated was kind of magical. I'll be honest with you. Wow. I love hearing you explain it. Yeah. Your explanation was even better than the book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just fascinated, of course, with the time signature. It's basically uh, mostly pentatonic minor, but I'm just fascinated with the way he does this. The... Now that is repeated. And when I used to jam on this, I played it wrong uh, for years because I didn't get that one little chestnut that he has there. The beauty of this bass part, it's the beginning, but it's also the anomaly that comes up in conjunction with the voice. So he says, money, get away. Get a good job with right there. I love that, how he repeats the get a good job with. I think that's part of what really drags us in. It's It's got that droning effect. It's almost like a minor key nursery rhyme. Get a good job with good pain. Yeah, okay. Money. And the other, the brilliance of Dave Gilmore is he's not saying money on the downbeat. And I always thought he did. And I often will just jam it that way. These notes, it's a D to a B. It's a B minor. And you're doing the third down to the root. And he sings money in between those two notes. Money! Like almost like a offbeat reggae, but not reggae thing. Which, Which if you listen closely, the independence of it all really makes it sound 
professional. If, if everything was on the beat, it would sound mechanical and silly and childish. The independence that Gilmore is able to put into the vocal just slightly off from the bass gives it that really polished adult feel, in, in my opinion. And then the bridge is just truly amazing. The... Um, High fidelity, first class traveling section. I think I need a legion. Um, I had one note wrong there, but that is just amazing. So you're you're in B minor the whole time, and you want to go to the fifth, and he really nails it. That's the F sharp. It's just beautiful. And he arpeggiates the chord. And then down to the fourth. Oh my God, it's just a one, five, four turnaround. But when you're doing it in that crazy time signature with all of these arpeggios, it, it's it's truly memorizable, musical and magical. So Money sees the introduction of Dick Perry on saxophone. And I love how Nick describes, Nick describes Dick Perry as part of the, quote, Cambridge Mafia. So, you know, all these stories about these these guys and Pink Floyd, um, you know, David and Sid and, and Roger and, and Storm, you know, they all, I guess, grew up in Cambridge and knew each other, you know, as as school age kids. And, you know, as as Gilmore describes it, I didn't know any other saxophone players. So, you know, they, they brought him in. And then, of course, they go into the interesting part of the song where. Yeah. And, and I can never quite. I can never quite figure out if if David is 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 playing with us or if he's being genuinely sincere and deflecting or what. But, you know, he he makes a specific point of saying that, you know, he had Dick do his his sax solo over the seven, eight part. But he's he had it switch into four, four for the guitar solo to make his (laughs) life easier. (laughs) Now, you know, I, I can't imagine that that David Gilmore needs his life to be easy, but it certainly does create, you know, a, just a, a an extremely driving feel when when you do have that switchover and and Gilmore just decides to shred your face off at that point, and then it it switches back in, um, and I just I, I like the way this song is constructed with regards to that. We've talked about this before because we talk about progressive rock, right? And one of the check marks is you have to have odd time signatures. Yay! So, okay, Pink Floyd checks checks the box here. But we've we've come across at different times in different bands, some odd time signatures come across better or more natural than others. And we've also sort of very politely perhaps tiptoed around some of the the nature of of Nick Mason's playing. Nick Mason handles this without breaking a sweat. It doesn't sound odd, contrived, weird, whatever. He just, this is nothing to him. And it sounds completely natural, which as I started to think about it, I'm like, well, that maybe is a little surprising, but hats off to Nick Mason. Not only is he a fun guy, you know, he can (laughs) handle this. (laughs) I'll counter, but only slightly. Okay. Uh, in the Blake book, there is an account that that he struggled with this in the studio. But there are so many live bootlegs out there. Money, money is a part of the 
the Rainbow Theater that I mentioned previously from 72. And, you know, you know whatever grievances he had, whatever, you know, tension was there, clearly he works that shit out in the live. Yeah, and that's, you know... And it's one of those things where, you know, I guess I'm I'm glad that Nick, you know, put in whatever effort was required to to sort this out because I do think it's it's lovely. Mm-hmm. When they said he had trouble with it, was it was it like ah, uh, you know, he had a little trouble with it because you know it was a goofy riff and you know, or was it like did he suffer great consternation? Like was he losing sleep overnight because God, he just couldn't get the seven eight eight song correct on the. <laughs> On the recording, I, I I don't I don't think Nick Mason has lost a night of sleep in his life. <laughs> <laughs> what could he possibly stress over? Oh no no I'm, I, no! I'm sure it was all a breeze. I, I I will say that during this period, he 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 just does some great stuff live, and there, a lot more of that jungle stuff and the jammy stuff. It's it's a real it's a real pleasure, yeah. It's a it's a it's a great call out because yeah I never I never even think about the drums in in this song. Um, they just they just lay the beat down and stay the hell out of the way. It's it's pretty great. Well, I mean, he demonstrates that in Eugene. Careful that X Eugene, mm-hmm. where it really is kind of an underlying jazz swing. So it's not that far reaching that they've delved into jazz in money and particularly in the solo section. Yeah. I think that's a staple of his playing all around, to be honest. Nick Mason isn't one of those people that you, that necessarily stand out. And I don't think that's a bad thing. He's in the pocket. He does what he needs to do. Uh, He doesn't overplay. And really, uh, I mean, we talked about this last week, but Pink Floyd has a lot more space in the music. If you want to compare it to, you know, some of the busier prog rock stuff that we listen to, maybe something off of like Fragile or something. I mean, compared to that, Pink Floyd is, you know, has that space that we talked about last week. And Nick Mason really keeps it in the pocket. So, I mean, I, I think this is a great example of, yeah. of of where he lays it all around as a drummer of Pink Floyd. Yeah. Another thing that struck me about this segment of the the documentary, this was one of those magical moments when you got David Gilmour at the board and he just starts isolating things. And he first isolates the guitar playing the main riff, as Ken was demonstrating earlier. And then obviously you have the bass guitar sort of doubling that or, you know, the guitar is doubling the bass riff, however you want to say it, but th- he's got those two tracks. Then he's got, um, he, he brings in the, the tremolo guitar, and then he's got two different tracks of just sort of offbeat, noisy guitar. And it's one of those things where, you know, un- until you, you see these things sort of pulled out and isolated, you wouldn't, I don't know, maybe I have never listened closely enough. I don't know that I would have picked out that there were, you know, at least four guitar tracks going on here in this song simultaneously. And it's just, you know, the 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 level of, of effort they went through to create this um, from a from a production perspective is is just phenomenal. You know, I, I just find it admirable. I'd like to hear that. I should have found that. Oh, really? If you if you find the the hour long version. 
of the uh, the documentary. It's there. We should probably find it for the YouTubes and and maybe yeah. uh, maybe link both on our show notes. What's the name mm. of the documentary, Joe? Because this is the one that I've never been able to find online. I'll see if I can find it. I'm pretty sure I, I found it um, when I was looking last weekend. Okay. So I'll, I'll try to forward that to you. Okay. It, it, it's always amazing when you can't find something on on YouTube. Like Ken, in passing, mentions a, de- a, a bootleg of an, a 1972 show at the Rainbow Room and boom. One quick search, I've got it. It's already in the notes. But for a month and a half, I've been trying to find this doc, this damn documentary on YouTube, and I can't. <laughs> um, if you if you search for Dark Side of the Moon classic albums, you may find it. Hmm. Okay. I found, and this may be part of the reason, Paul. They've cut up one documentary a lot, and they put it in a lot of different smaller things, like the making of Wish You Were Here, the making of Dark Side. And I noticed that they're all wearing the same clothing. So they probably <laughs> um, pieced different parts of this bigger documentary into into smaller deals. So there, there may be a couple going around of, of very similar pieces. Maybe that's what it is. There's also a 53-minute documentary. And I can't watch it because there's just this douchebag with, with like – a white shirt and shades. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's the that's the one. That's is the that one. the one? Is that the, yes. the music the music legends magazine one? Yeah. Um, maybe. Uh, is it? Boy, it's yeah. I can't oh, watch. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have a white shirt. This is this is my douchebag. Wait, let me see. No. Oh yeah, I, no. I know what no, you're talking about, Paul. The guy is an older gentleman. He has short hair and he has yeah. glasses. Uh, he's not in it too much, to be honest. And it's actually that documentary is pretty good. But that's not the one I was looking at. Okay. Uh, anyway, I'll find. No, but I'll find Paul, it. you should watch that one if you can. If you can get over <laughs> I can't, that. Guy. I tried to watch some of it. I couldn't take it. I, I couldn't take that guy. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I did see some of that now that you mentioned it. We're just slowly becoming those folks. We just don't want to know <laughs> It's true. It's true. The irony. Oh, we're sitting here talking about not being able to stand people talking about music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, there, there's a certain irony there. No doubt about it. So this gets us into us and them. Oh, boy. I'll tell you, Us and Them is a song that I never really paid attention to. I knew it was there, but it wasn't necessarily on my radar. And, and it was probably when, when Roger Waters came through in, I guess it was 2017, with the Us and Them tour. So it was like, you know, I, I, I guess at that point, maybe I started paying attention. I don't know. But it... Certainly, as I was was preparing now for the palaver, this song suddenly became the the crown jewel in this particular album for me. There is so much about this song that I just find to be so beautiful and so moving. I just I'm I'm stunned, you know, by the way 
this this song comes across the the dynamics and the emotion that it evokes and i just i i i think it's so wonderful and what's really funny is you know when we were talking about oh i forget which album but it was after they did more and they started working with um michelangelo and tonioni on zabriskie point and that by all accounts, didn't work out very well. The basic music for us and them was written during that period. It was written for Zabriskie Point. You know, I guess it wasn't used for whatever reason, and they, they kept it around, and they hadn't used it through, you know, the other three or four albums that they'd done since. And, you know, it's one of those things where, thank heaven for whoever said, hey, what about this? Because it's it's spectacular mm-hmm. and, and the way that it's used. And in the last episode, Uh, or maybe it was in the pre-show, it doesn't matter, at some point here last week, I mentioned my desire to hang out with Roger Waters, even though um, a lot of interviews, he drives me kind of crazy. But his impersonation of Antonioni is just roll on the floor, priceless laughing. It is so, you know, and it's so unexpected that he would be able to just whip this out on you and mm-hmm. it is very very engaging so again that's in that's in the documentary that that i saw and and we'll we'll get that out there if you haven't seen it and and it's the way they cut that documentary is hilarious because they have gilmore talking about the interaction with antonioni he basically sets up the line and then they cut immediately to Roger Waters in the Italian voice. And, oh, it is just priceless. <laughs> mm, mm, it is absolutely just delightful. Roger's just one of the boys, just like us. We haven't spent much time on the lyrics on this album, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you've got The Great Gig in the Sky, which doesn't have any lyrics. And it's, it's just absolutely fabulous. But it's the lyrics in this song that really, really moved me. I think... This is this is some of Roger's best work with regards to that. You know, when you get into what essentially is the chorus, forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died and the general sat and the lines on the map moved from side to side. It's, you know, again, it's such a, a direct and elegant way to express this sort of fundamental dichotomy of of how war works and you know i'll give i'll give a shout out to you know my my latest sort of fascination this hardcore history and i'm now into episode three i think uh, of covering world war one which means at three plus hours an episode i'm probably about seven eight hours into listening to this guy talk about freaking World War One, um, and it's you know it, it World War One being important because it's the first modern war and it's it's sort of the first time that this sort of detached um, you know relationship between military leadership and and troops maybe comes into focus a little bit. So it it, it just seems kind of fortuitous that I would be listening to that. At the same time, I'm contemplating this particular um, song and and this album, and and of course he doesn't necessarily stop with the overt military references because he he goes on to sort of explain that this sort of struggle, 
comes into other aspects of life. So the second time we get the chorus, haven't you heard it's a battle of words? The poster bearer cried, listen, son, said the man with the gun, there's room for you inside. You know, here again, this seems to be, you know, not on the battlefield. This is maybe more of a, you know, a a socio-political type situation going on. So, you know, Roger's taking this worldview and and sort of looking in all the corners and seeing where this this general concept constantly reshows itself and i just i i find like i said the the emotion when they get into that chorus and the way it's in such contrast with all that echoey space on the verses and ah oh, it just makes me fuzzy beautiful yeah Oh, now I know what these Webbers are telling me. Oh, this is beautiful. Do you hear this, guys? <laughs> oh, that one right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about what what he's doing there. So so anybody can play a D chord and drop the third, the top note, down to an open E, and get that beautiful sound. And and but then that's keeping the D as a pedal tone and moving the chord up a whole step. But this is absolute beauty when you have a major seven chord. Like that note, that's yeah. the major seven. Ah, oh, but but the F there makes it so sad. And then he's basically just resolving that to some sort of a G. So 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 I mean it's nice. it, it it's a one, it's a one, and you want to end up on the four chord, which is the, the G. But the way you get there is just this: you push the two to a major oh yeah i mean actually it's no third it's just it's just beautiful it's got but it sounds majory when you do that and then and then you you take the, the one and you make it a minor chord with a raised seven it's gorgeous and then you oh god i'm so glad i figured out the interwebs and, nice. And, and 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 really, it's just taking a major song and making it a minor song when you go into the chorus. It's just a big B minor, and, it, and none of this is particularly crazy. Oh, but but yeah, that's interesting. He ends it on a, a C there. Yeah, who who gets the credit on this one? Is it Waters and Wright? Oh, it has to be right. Yeah, see? Yeah. And Waters is like, oh, I'm afraid to leave this group because, you know, I have all these careers in the balance and the guys won't be able to write without me. But, you know, Waters isn't the same when he doesn't have that right influence. Yeah. Yeah. Is is Richard Wright the magic sauce? Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, again, not not to beat a dead horse, but we, we keep sort of stumbling across these these magic moments that Richard brings to the table. It's it's delightful. I'm so happy that we do. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, and again, this is the beauty of doing this thing that we do is 
you know, not only do we get to have fun, you know, gabbing to each other every week, which I love to do with you guys, but it really does enhance my understanding and enjoyment of a lot of these these albums that I've listened to for years. Mm-hmm. Well, having contributions by Richard Wright is really going to come into play later on. We'll get into the, the drama now, but um, <laughs> you know, Roger Waters and Richard Wright, really, there's a whole thing that, that goes on later. So it's interesting that we're actually just bringing these these nice things up that Richard is contributing because I think Roger Waters really needed to be reminded of some of these things later on in his career. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's funny, Tom, because we spend so much time sort of focused on the the obvious, um, dare we say, animosity between Waters and Gilmore. But you're right. It's 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 Waters and Wright that sort of bubble over first. So that is interesting, mm-hmm. which moves us into the the end game. Any color you like, you know, does this count as sort of a throwback to the psychedelic jam days? Dare I say that? I I well, I mean, so for me, there's only two tracks on side two: money and and then and then us and them, which is just a long, almost twenty minutes of. Of this, I don't, I, I don't, I never really even know where any color you like actually begins and ends. I mean, I guess I can probably decide, you know, figure it out, but I do feel like there's a little bit there. The keyboard solo stuff is great, but I just love what Nick Mason is doing in this part. It's just simple, but genius. It's driving, it's fun, and nobody's really doing anything too ridiculously complicated, but it's just so damn good. Hmm. And it reminds me of that, that that part in metal where they just like locked into the jam. Yeah. And and it was like, that's it. That's the bass and guitar sound that we or the bass and drum sound we want for the rest of our band's life. You know, and, and it's these sorts of things, right? I, I've I think I've made the, the statement and I'll probably make it five more times because I like to repeat myself. Dark side of the moon, wish you were here. Animals to a certain degree, certainly the wall. These albums don't seem very long when you listen to them. It's like they're gone in an instant yeah. because it it's such a it, – it's like when you pick up a book that's just an easy read, right? And before you know it, you're done. And you're like, well, that was easy. And you could read a different book that has the exact same number of pages, and it could take you six months because you just can't get through it, right? <laughs> so there's something about these albums that just sort of – flows like water once you get into it to the point where you know you you may not even pay attention to this track as a track because you're just kind of in in whatever space they've created for you here um but i think i think the fact that you can almost overlook this speaks to how delightful and how wonderful it is apparently delightful is my word for the night so there was a there everybody got a turn with a delay pedal and i think this one was richard wright's this song was his turn, um, which is pretty awesome, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's funny too, Joe. I'm just looking at, at at it on Spotify. It's three and a half minutes long. They, right? Maybe I, maybe I just don't know when it starts. You think it's just like some sort of ninety second connective tissue or something? But it's 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 yeah. a full full length song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the keyboards in this are just freaking epic. I think the best thing about Pink Floyd. It, you know, and I think that in these, you know, can you kind of you sort of alluded to this in your depiction of 
and your description of money, right? The, the, the mechanism of using the seven, eight time signature is makes it complicated, makes it different, but at the heart of it, it's just a one, four, five song. Like it's nothing like there's never anything that is so overtly complicated about hmm. any of this stuff, but they, they just execute it with such emotion and passion and feeling and, and just it for all the right reasons, they get the most out of, you know, all the stuff. It's just, it's just wonderful. Well, I'm going to hedge my bets and say, because they figured it out live because they're, they're creating that drama. I described live Pink Floyd as a, a big, slow moving Godzilla. Like, like that's why, you know, you just, you just, that's why you go to watch this huge beast unfold. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say you're right, Ken, because you think about any color you like, is that what the song's called? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> think about that. You think about that song. There's no way that track can end without going into brain damage. Like it's it's written to go and resolve on the oh, decode yeah. into brain damage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And brain yep. damage can never. I mean, it's not like you can't play brain damage. You have to right. play yeah. brain damage and eclipse, right? Mm -hmm. So yep, yep. And to some degree, us and them can't really be played. Just you know, I guess you can end it. I'm sure they did, but it really feels like two tracks on on side two. And I bet you're right. It's because they figured it out live. This is beautiful. So it's very Beatlesque, <laughs> and and it's a one four. It's a D to a G, but it's clearly not your usual D to G because the G is a G seven. So it takes it, you know, out of the diatonic into the jazzy, into the bluesy, into the Beatles, and. And then when when he takes it up, it's up a whole step. So the two suddenly has a major third, and I, I mistakenly alluded to that in the last one. But no, the last one didn't have a third. Um, but this one sure as hell does, and it's just beautiful. And then going back down, remembering games. <laughs> um, oh, oh, yeah, and, and then gotta keep. Yeah, 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 the loonies on the path. And And... For some reason, that suspension right there at the end of that verse, what, what with that, yeah. with that, with that two ringing out instead of the third, it's so iconic for me. I just love that turnaround. I agree, Ken. I because how many times in popular music, you know, do you get the D chord with that sus two, right? But when is it ever that that juicy and delicious? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Seriously, you can always do it in the middle of a measure, big deal. But when yeah. you use it for a turnaround like that, it becomes a piece of art. It's yes, 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 yes. The chorus—it's not even diatonic in the chorus, although you, you you'd think it stays in the key. And if the dam breaks open, then it's too soon. On the hill. It's just G A C G. I would say that's that's kind of flower power in 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 my chord vocabulary because because you are playing just three note chords 
and and very much guitar oriented chords from the G mm. to the A to the C. But as soon as you hit the C back to the G, yeah, it's just something very folk music about that. Yeah. Ah, but because it's Waters and he's not going to leave it be purely folk music, um, he has to get out of it with something dark and sinister. So B minor seven there to like an E minor or E minor seven. Then finally you get to the five and he takes it around. But, you know, it had to be it had to be the B minor to the e minor to make it Pink Floyd. Mm. Very beautiful. Slightly change of topic. I was just looking at here. I'm glad that they gave Claire Torrey songwriting credit on Great Gig in the Sky. I mean, it makes sense. It yeah. makes it makes sense that they did. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. That 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 wasn't given voluntarily, no? okay. Tom. <laughs> no, yeah, they're given through the courts. Yeah, given through the courts and and, and arbitration. Okay, well, good for her. Yeah, because a song is is the melody. So good for her. Yeah, at least it wasn't yeah. posthumously. I mean, at least she was alive when it all happened, and she got to reap, you know, the check. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Because you know, there's something to be said about that for an improvisational bit. You know, we talked we talked at the opening part of the show about all the different YouTube versions that we saw. They all sing the same exact melody. You know, nobody's going off and doing their own thing, really. Um, you know, that's possible. But Led Zeppelin doesn't have to play for ripping off Stairway to Heaven. So you never know what you're going to get out of the courts. I don't I don't really buy into the Stairway to Heaven nonsense. I've listened to those two songs. I don't think there's anything that well. I, I don't buy into it. I'll say that. Here's what I love. All the words in Brain Damage are awesome, but I just love the last phrase. And if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I, I just fucking love it, you know, because there's so much imagery that, I mean, there's so, I mean, this, this whole second side is about all facets of life. And it's just like a shout out to all all the fucking guitar players and the musicians and it, at least that's how I took it because that's that's how I was right you know trying to get a hold of this life and it's like hey if the band that you're in starts playing different tunes fuck it there are a couple things about this that I, I really like now again in the in the documentary Roger has a a, a fairly eloquent description of, of what he was going for here and, and what the the imagery means. He admits it was perhaps somewhat influenced by Sid, but yeah, I mean, he says, and I'll quote him, that this song is about, quote, defending the notion of being different. And, you know, the idea that, you know, these people, these places create these these beautiful patches of grass and you're not supposed to walk on them. And if you want to walk on them, you're sometimes somehow seen as being, you know, deviant or whatever. And and so he was sort of juxtaposing who's the actual loony in this scenario. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he describes that, you know, he had a specific patch of grass in mind as he was writing these lyrics, which is is very, very cool. But there's there's one point in this song that that really slays me, and that is at the end of the you shout your name and no one seems to hear. And at that, you know, just right on the end of that that phrase, the the backing vocals come in and just 
just destroy me. Yeah. I just, I love the way, you know, again, the song is constructed and, you know, Paul, you had mentioned sort of at the top of this, this section on, on brain damage, there's no way this, this song can end without going into eclipse. And the structure, the lyric structure of Eclipse is so different from brain damage. Yeah. And yet it fits so perfectly. And I love sort of the summation of, of all of these concepts that we've been, you know, exploring in this album is just presented to us at the end here. It's just, it's beautiful. I love the way they, they did it. So, you know, here's something interesting, and I'm just le- reading the lyrics off the internet for the first time ever. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you just, if we're, if I just simplify it for the sake of this discussion and say this album is about life, right? All the aspects of life, right? The thing that I love about the, the, the closing two tracks here is that, you know, brain damage is basically saying, listen, things aren't going to work out the way you think they are and it's going to be okay, right? Like there's, to me, there's some sort of peaceful, feeling that I get out of brain damage, um, even though it's sort of sinister and, you know, in its, um, in its tone, you know, I, I get that sort of that feeling like if your head explodes with dark forebodings, right? Like that, like if like those, those three takeaways for me are the best. If your head explodes with dark forebodings, if there's no room on the hill, but if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, right. And then you get to that, that piece of, eclipse and it basically is like everything's going to be okay and then because then it goes through everything right all these touch all you see blah 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 everything is going to be in tune you know and the funny part is is i always thought the line was and everything under the sun is in tune and i thought it was when the sun is eclipsed by the moon but i see it here written but the sun is eclipsed by the moon i see that too I see that as well, and but it, it doesn't. I don't know that it sounds that way. Mm-hmm. I don't have my my uh, CD booklet with me to look, but it's just sort of disappointing to me. I just have to give a shout out to Richard Wright. Just the vocals all over the song. <laughs> yes. Vocal, you know what I mean? All those harmonies. And it so works when um, actually Gilmore does this. And Gilmore will sing the waters part in the beginning. And it's like, this is really interesting. It's different. It's creepy. It's good. It's different. And then when he's with Wright, it's just beautiful. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, now you have that right vocal coming in. This is great. It, It checks a box for me. I don't know if you guys thought about this, but during Marillion, I was really big on my six eights and 12 eights. So this has that nice little rolling mm-hmm. sound with the groups of three. I love yeah, it. that's nice. I didn't I didn't think of that. That's awesome. The other thing about this that stands out for me, the palaver journey is in some ways tied up to when I saw Roger Waters in 2017, because it was it was one of the things that I wanted to talk about in, in addition to to doing the albums. Now, we never did a special concert series edition on that show because it was too far after the fact uh, when we had sort of got going and, and we never, we never went back and talked about it. But I will say that I I remember my brain being absolutely fried when 
Waters performed this. And the reason my brain was fried, and I've explained this before, on this show, I bought tickets in a very specific part of the arena because I thought I was being very, very smart. What I didn't mm-hmm. realize was that Roger Waters was smarter than I was and 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 had created for the second half of the show this – he created the Battersea Power Station right down the center of the arena. So I was I was at the far end of the arena, sort of center stage, with the idea that I could sit back comfortably above all of the proletariat on the floor in my elevated position and be able to take in the entire show. And when they when they rolled out the Battersea power station right in front of me, it <laughs> there was a lot of stuff going on from the sides that I, I wasn't able to fully appreciate, which was kind of a bummer. But when they did this particular song, as I recall, Battersea Power Station disappeared. And at the the culmination of of these two songs, um, when you get that, you know, eclipsed by the the sun is eclipsed by the moon and everything else at that point. And I, I believe we've shared pictures of this. The stage is now encased in a you know, some sort of a a white lasery pyramid with the full spectrum light emanating from it. And it was just as wonderful and mind blowing as you can possibly imagine. Mm. You know, it was because I didn't even know that you could do lighting effects like that. And I'm just I'm sitting there with my jaw in my lap going. So, you know, Roger, Roger still understands the the impact of this and at least in, in the 2017 show was able to deliver that in a way that I found to be extraordinarily moving and rememberable. You know, I contrast that with uh, uh, isn't there a documentary for the making of the last Genesis tour? And it's like yes. some, uh-huh. some 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 guy shows up with a bunch of clip art. It's like yeah, yes. what do you want throw this here, yeah. throw this there. Can, hey, exactly, this pretty good. This looks pretty good. No, but for Floyd, that's a, that's an effing science. It's like mm-hmm. ingrained into the culture, ingrained into he, he, whether it's whether it's Roger Waters or Gilmore. It's just all of this stuff is like religion. It has to be part of the show. Well, and, and and think about that. What we were talking about at the top of this episode, right? Where you know they're they're redoing the the five point one mix, and you've got Storm and Poe Powell in there redoing the artwork to go with it, and it's this sort of unified vision. And we've had we had conversations in the Genesis segment along these very lines. It's like, yeah, we were always not so great about album covers, and we just kind of pick something at the end. And a lot of their album covers don't. You know, it's it's not it's not joined. I mean, when we get there, right? You can't think of the album Animals without thinking of Battersea Power Station. None of us even know where the fuck Battersea Power Station is here in America. But we, if you show me a picture, I'd be like, "That's Battersea Power Station." I couldn't I couldn't tell you where it is in England, but I know exactly what it is. <laughs> Oh, I'm happy. Oh, as as we're winding down here, I, I have to share. Um, the night before the Palaver met up in Kennett Square to see Yes Tribute Total Mass Retain, 
I managed to see our, our regional Pink Floyd uh, tribute. Paul, you, you're familiar? Yeah. Scott, La- Scott Lawling's group. Yeah. Echoes. Uh, wonderful, wonderful group. And uh, they, yeah, they, 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 they do Dark Side. I can't remember if I saw Side 1 or Side 2, but it's just breathtaking. You show up to the show and they're going to do five album sides and they don't tell you which ones they are. So when you hear like the first sound effect or the first chord, you're like, oh, you just explode because you know. <laughs> and, 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 and I, you know, I only saw them once. I, I, I had tickets to a show that was Corona postponed. Um, but yeah, the, I, you're pretty much guaranteed when you go see Echoes, the American Pink Floyd, nice. that you will see at least side one or side two of Dark Side. Just awesome effing treat. So we managed to do close to four hours of of Dark Side. Pretty impressive. Yeah, we have. Well, we are. You know, we like to talk. It's work to your strengths, Tom. Our strengths are we like to talk. But you know, I just the way that that you know this eclipse lands this album is. I, I mean, it, it really is phenomenal, and it's timeless. And it's in a lot of ways, it's perfect. Like, you, like we said, you flip the album over and all the songs kind of flow naturally into the other. And it, you get just like, you know, the, the perfect end that you're just, you're left fully satisfied. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Oh God. Yeah. And and then of course you get that, that tasteful little spoken word at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What what is it? Well, there is no dark side of the moon. In fact, it's all dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it, it just and then of course it goes out with the kick drum heartbeats, yeah. right? Which you know, again, if you're listening on CD and it cycles through, it just swings you perfectly right back around to the beginning. Yeah. And if you're not, if you're just listening to um, to it on you know vinyl or whatever, it does sort of bookend the experience that you just had. And it, it sort of allows you to sort of gracefully wind down and, and exit. So there's a reason why The Dark Side of the Moon is, you know, on that list of the greatest selling albums of all time. There are lots of reasons why it's on there. You know, it's one of those things where, pun intended, all the planets aligned, right? And everything came together. So you had this band that, again, finally figured out how to do or to integrate all the things they were doing. You had Alan Parsons come in with all of the experience and, and techniques that he had, you had, um, you know, this this guy we brought in for the mix, and a, a lot of the greatest accomplishments always seem to be brought about or include some level of tension, right? You need to have the right level of tension. So you had just enough of that to make this work well. You had contributions from all of the different band members in places where it it fit. You had, and you know, we've got to give him credit. You had, you know, Roger came with these lyrics. Roger had, you know, whether it was retconned or whatever, you know, there, there's a, a structure here. There was an idea that was was trying to be communicated, and and all of this kind of came together at the right time, the right studio setup, and the you know everything was there. 
Um, you know, think about other albums we've talked about that, you know, maybe musically they were, they were great, but sonically they were flawed or something. I mean, imagine if if they had just had, you know, bad sounds on this record, right? And you had to, these, these songs wouldn't impact you yeah. as much if it wasn't recorded so well. I yeah, think. you can get a sense of that by listening to the Roger Waters demo of Money. Actually, oh man, is that <laughs> 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 that is totally different. So I, I just like I said, I, I just think there's a reason why this album has the reputation that it has. And while a couple of weeks ago I was, you know, quietly, you know, sowing sedition in the ranks of the palaver by saying that, you know, Wish You Were Here was a quote better album, I'm not prepared to defend that position anymore. <laughs> You and me both, but uh, something tells me next week we we might have a we'll be du- we'll be duking it out exactly exactly. <laughs> I mean, we we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm surprised Pink Floyd was so big up until Dark Side. I mean, because they they had a, a big following. They were playing big shows. It's almost like the fans knew they could do this, and they were just like waiting for this. You know, it, it's almost like they were waiting for this album and they stuck it out over year after year after year because they had been around for a, a while up to this point. And, um, you know, a, a lot of these albums just did not have I don't I don't want to use the word commercial. When you think of Pink Floyd, you don't think of commercial, but there just wasn't elements prior to this that you could really stick your teeth into. I love Adam Hart Mother and there's that's always going to be part of my my heart. But I'm happy that they were able to take it to another level. Yeah. And people were able to appreciate it on on several levels. So I'm 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 happy that they were able to take it to this level, but I'm happy that fans were able to see them for what they were going to be because as we talked about, we got like different bits and pieces of it. Yeah. But some of the pieces were pretty raw. And so this was just I'm going to throw this out, Tom, because I, I love what you're saying. And I and I have I don't know if it's a full on theory. It's just uh, some thoughts that are in my head and I'll share. And I'm interested to think what you guys say. When I think about even when we grew up, right, there was a very, a very serious sense of what was popular. Right. And there was popular types of music, but that there was also counter cultures of music, if you will, that there was plenty of room for in the mainstream. Right. And we've talked about our, you know, Sunday nights listening to Metal Shop to hear songs. You know, you would listen to 94 One YSP because you wanted to get more of the album type rock like this kind of stuff. You would listen to 93.3 so you could hear more like ACDC and Van Halen. Then you had your pop stations and um, they were telling us what was good and what we liked and what we didn't like. But there was so much more variety available and a lot of what it seemed to be at least a lot of people were schooled in one way, shape or form in music. They had some sort of music education. And I think if you go back to, you know, the 60s and into the early 70s, right, I'm going to say that more people knew how to play instruments, more, more people took music lessons, more people were educated formally in music at school throughout their entire schooling. And there was a more open mindedness towards what what you could achieve and what you could experience musically. And, you know, when I think about what my kids listen to, they, the only thing that can permeate their consciousness is what is made popular by YouTube, video games, 
radio, whatever. There, there is no room for diversity in their listening. There, there. It's rarely. I think it's extremely difficult because their idea of branching out is, oh, now I'm listening to country pop these days, and. I don't think it's that way for everybody, but I do think from a artistic perspective, I think it's that much more difficult in today's day and age to see that happening. Where I think in in the sixties, people were into it, right? They were they were like, Man, this shit's awesome. Like it's it's whacked. They're not gonna play on the radio. There's no but this shit is awesome. I can't wait to go see it live. And I just feel like and maybe it's just me, you know, projecting greatness on the on the past, like it, in, in some some foolish romantic way. But just seems like people had more mind and music education to experience and understand and support this kind of stuff compared to the way things are today. Well, this is interesting, Paul, because this book ends with a story you told last week of you and your sister when you were growing up. And your, your sister was explaining Dark Side of the Moon to you for the first time. I think society has a lot less of those conversations going on right now than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. I suppose that, that there could be a lot of conversations about subtext or character arcs in certain films, but certainly not a conversation about Dark Side of the Moon and the sort of profound impact that Dark Side of the Moon has. I couldn't see my kids talking about Dark Side of the Moon the way you, you told the story about you and your sister. We could probably all say that about our kids. Um, not that there's anything wrong with our kids, but our kids, unfortunately, won't get to have those those conversations. So that, that story, Paul, really stuck with me. And I guess that brings us to the end of the Dark Side of the Moon. Gentlemen, this has been a very exciting and interesting um, two-week adventure uh, sort of covering this. So as always... You know, I want to thank you guys for your time and your your thoughts on this. I think this was, I think we did this one justice. Uh, it was sort of a natural sort of way to to do it, even though we had joked about it before we started. So, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm very pleased with sort of the outcome here, and I am, you know, still very excited about the next portion of the the Pink Floyd segment. Wish you were here. Very very near and dear to my heart, animals I have come to know and love. And the wall is, dare I say, iconic. So this is this is going to be some some fun fun stuff that we have ahead of us. But thank you, uh, thank you guys again, and uh, so we'll look forward to next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing it with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, questions, and feedback. We know there has to be some thoughts on this most epic of albums. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at ProgPala on there, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're more than welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or presumably wherever you do find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.
What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs>